I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. And welcome, We the People friends, to our discussion of the Constitution and Abortion Part 2. Last week we had a very rich and important discussion about uh, the constitutional arguments for and against Roe v. Wade and Casey versus Planned Parenthood and whether they should or shouldn't be overturned. The homework was to write to me to tell me what you thought of the constitutional merits of the decision. decision. And a shout out to Juan Kim, who wrote a really thoughtful essay about uh, the equal protection arguments and is a rising law student. Thank you, Juan, for taking the time to write in. Uh, today, I'm really excited to have a discussion about one of the most important developments in the debate about abortion in the Constitution, and that is the attempts by some states to recognize fetal personhood. And joining us to illuminate this debate and explore its history are two of America's leading commentators on the question. I'm so excited to have the chance to learn from both of them. David French is senior writer for National Review, a senior fellow at the National Review Institute, and a constitutional attorney. He was previously president of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, a lecturer at Cornell Law School, a senior counsel for the Alliance Defending Freedom, and a returning champion on We the People. David, it's wonderful to have you back on the show. Well, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. And Mary Ziegler is the Stearns Weaver Miller Professor at Florida State University College of Law. She specializes in the legal history of reproduction, the family, sexuality, and the Constitution. She's the author of the award-winning book, After Roe, The Lost History of the Abortion Debate, published in 2015. And she's the author of the forthcoming book, Abortion in America, A Legal History, Roe v. Wade to the Present. Mary, it is great to have you back with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Well, let's begin with the Box decision, which the Supreme Court handed down yesterday. In a per curiam decision, that's a unanimous unsigned decision, the Supreme Court in Box versus Planned Parenthood of Indiana and Kentucky upheld uh, portions of in Indiana law relating to the disposition of fetal remains by abortion providers, but allowed a, a continued stay of the part of the law that banned the knowing provision of sex, race, or disability selective abortion by abortion providers. David, tell us uh, about the significance of the court's brief per curiam opinion and what it signals about the future of the abortion debate at the Supreme Court. Uh, I think the main significance uh, or the, the most interesting aspect of the decision is its caution. Um, the, the element of the decision where the Supreme Court reached a substantive ruling where it reversed the Seventh Circuit, essentially just found that there's a rational a rational basis for the Indiana law governing fetal remains. And uh, it was not actually a substantive decision on the abortion right itself. The other element of the opinion is it, it essentially just said it's, it's withholding any review of uh, the sex-selective abortion prohibition in Indiana law. This is not something that other circuits have taken up. Uh, it is not something that there's no circuit split. There are no other circuits um, taking a look at it. And so essentially the, the Supreme Court just said, nope, we're going to wait. We're going to wait. And this is fitting 
with a previous action that the Supreme Court took in a Louisiana admitting privileges case not long ago where it essentially said uh, it's not going to take an opportunity to do an early look at the merits, the, subst- the substantive merits of the Louisiana admitting privileges law. It's going to wait and hear the ca- uh, case potentially in the, in the normal course of business. And so these two cases together, in my mind, signal that there are not right now four justices who are ready to take, uh, at least under the procedural posture of these cases, a big, bold look at substantive abortion law. Uh, it, it is a decision that says uh, time will tell about what the Supreme Court will do uh, and that caution is warranted in making assumptions about what the Supreme Court will do. Mary, Justice Ginsburg argued that uh, the Supreme Court should not have reversed the Seventh Circuit without briefing or oral argument, and she thought that Planned Parenthood would have prevailed under uh, heightened review, which she thought was the correct test, um, citing uh, the 2016 Hellerstadt decision, which said that the precedent demanded close review. What was at stake in the disagreement between Justice Ginsburg and the other justices about the standard of review, if anything, and, and what do you make of the significance of the Box per curiam decision? Well, uh, rational basis, at least true rational basis, is quite deferential. And so the court really spent very little time in its per curiam opinion on whether the law actually had a legitimate purpose. It assumed that it did um, without a lot of analysis, referencing a past decision from 1983 um, involving an Akron model law. And the court acknowledged that the tailoring of the law wasn't perfect, but in a deferential kind of posture, it didn't need to be. Um, The difference would have been, if Justice Ginsburg had had her way, that the court would have probably looked in greater detail um, at whether the law actually achieves some benefit, which is, I think, a a tricky question when you're looking at something like fetal dignity, um, which isn't the sort of thing that's as easy to measure, for example, as health outcomes for women, which was at issue in the Hellerstedt case, and may also have taken more issue with the fact that the law wasn't perfectly tailored because Hellerstedt, um, it seemed, instructed uh, courts to look at whether the benefits of the law um, outweighed the burdens or vice versa. And so if there was evidence, for example, that um, the law didn't particularly protect fetal dignity, which was a stance that I I think the Seventh Circuit and the the trial court seemed to take, at least implicitly, that might lead to a different result if the court had applied um, what Justice Ginsburg calls heightened review, but uh, essentially the kind of beefed up version of the undue burden test that we've seen in recent years. Uh, David, Mary mentioned uh, the notion of fetal dignity, and in its uh, petition for certiorari, Indiana argued that the fetal remains provision expands on a long-established legal and cultural traditions of recognizing the dignity and humanity of the fetus. Um, In his fascinating concurring opinion, Justice Thomas talks at length about uh, the history of the eugenics movement, namely the uh, movement that uh, aspired for the science of better breeding. He views sex selection and other forms of selective abortion as a kind of eugenics and does refer to the child uh, rather than the fetus. 
uh, I want we the people listeners to check out a really fascinating panel discussion the Constitution Center had recently on eugenics and its social and political history, which we've just published on the Live in America's Town Hall podcast. But David, I want to ask you what you made of, of Justice Thomas's very provocative concurrence and whether or not you believe him in it to be recognizing uh, the dignity and, and perhaps even constitutionally protected life of the fetus. I, I think from his opinion, if you're looking at it, he is walking right up to that line. Uh, he is essentially broadcasting where he stands on this really core question of the por- personhood of the fetus. And he's also doing more than that here. What he's doing is he's, by the language that he uses, um, he is acknowledging the humanity of the unborn child. He is also calling into question some of the fundamental motivations Certainly not of, you know, all all proponents of abortion rights, not all, of all pro-choice activists, but some of the fundamental motivations for the origin of the abortion right itself. So, he's I think he's here doing two things at once. And and to anyone who's sort of paid attention to Clarence Thomas's abortion jurisprudence over the years, neither one of them should be all that surprising. But he is he is adopting language that is uh, very reminiscent. And, and matches very closely and closely aligned with uh, personhood language, personhood, the personhood movement. Uh, and at the same time, he is very dramatically calling into question the essentially the motivation for um, the origin of the abortion right itself as fitting within a broader eugenics movement. And so here he is doing something that I would describe as one, a justice of the Supreme Court is throwing down the gauntlet not just on the Indiana law, but sort of on the fundamental underpinnings of the abortion right itself, which uh, is interesting to see him do it. But of all of the justices, I think he's the one that most people would say would be most likely to do it. So I don't think we learned anything all that new about where Clarence Thomas stands. Uh, it's It's just news every time he repeats that stance is the way I would phrase it. Uh, Mary, do you agree with David or not that Justice Thomas's reference to the child's race, to Margaret Sanger's belief that birth control could prevent unfit people from reproducing, uh, signals his embrace of fetal personhood? And what do you make of this tie between the dark and undoubtedly uh, disgraceful history of the eugenics movement, which, as Justice Thomas accurately said, uh, was used disproportionately to discriminate against African-Americans as, as well as uh, Jews, and, and this uh, uh, far more contested notion of uh, fetal personhood. Well, I think I absolutely agree with David that this isn't particularly new for Thomas. Thomas has written repeatedly to express his frustration with Roe and Casey and abortion jurisprudence writ large. Um, in, in some ways, actually, his criticisms of that jurisprudence were more muted here than I've seen in the past. Um, I think the the history, um, I mean, I'm a historian. He actually used a lot of the sources from a chapter of my book. I kept waiting. I'm, you know, I should have cited me, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, the... The history, obviously, unsurprisingly, is a lot more complicated than Justice Thomas painted it. Uh, there, Margaret Sanger did pitch very heavily to eugenicists, in part because eugenicists enjoyed so much popular support. That's part of the dark history, that this was not a right or a left cause in many ways. It was 
something that a lot of politicians and donors and foundations embraced. Uh, so I think in that way, Sanger was more of an opportunist than a true believer. Um, and I think that there were certainly uh, eugenicists who sought refuge in the population control movement that Thomas references. And there were certainly members of the population control movement who supported legal abortion. And there were members of the abortion rights movement who used population control arguments. But the population control movement was very complicated. It, it's, there's not a one-to-one -one correlation with the eugenic legal reform movement. And there's certainly not an easy one-to-one -one correlation between the contemporary pro-choice movement and the population control movement. In fact, there was a very deliberate repudiation of population control arguments by pro-choice groups in the mid-70s because they did sort of smack of coercion and racism in a way that the feminists then leading those groups didn't like. So there's some grains of truth in Thomas's opinion when it comes to the history, but it's, it's pretty oversimplified, which is not particularly shocking when it comes to law office history, but it's worth pointing out. David, let us now delve into the fetal personhood movement. You have written some important pieces recently in National Review uh, describing the fetal personhood movement and the preambles to uh, several of the new laws explicitly refer to fetal personhood. Uh, Alabama, which on May 15th passed a full abortion ban, uh, states in the United States Declaration of Independence, the principle of natural law that all men are created equal was articulated. The self-evident truth found in natural law that all human beings are equal from creation was at least one of the basis for the anti-slavery movements. And similarly, the Missouri fetal heartbeat bill uh, says, in recognition that Almighty God is the author of life, that all men and women are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, um, and that the Missouri Constitution provides that all persons have a natural right to life. It is the intention of the General Assembly to g defend the right to life of all human beings, born and unborn, and so forth. Um, tell us, please, about this fetal personhood movement. To what degree uh, is it a new um, turn among the pro-life movement? To what degree uh, does it have a history? And how significant is it that several states are now explicitly recognizing the right to life of the fetus? Oh, right. So this is a, this is a complicated question, but let's let's say, is it new? No. Uh, its its origin really goes back to at least as a as a uh, as a fundamental aim of the pro-life movement goes back to a sentence in the 1973 Roe decision where Justice Harry Blackman said, quote, if the suggestion of personhood is established, Roe's case of collapses for the fetus's right to life would then be guaranteed specifically by the 14th Amendment. Now, Blackman was speaking about personhood under the federal constitution. But what you'll hear when you talk to some of these state legislators who are involved in drafting these, these state laws is that they're saying, Okay, there is a separate line of Supreme Court authority that essentially says it is within the province of states to expand. A state cannot contract individual liberty um, to a degree le less protect. In other words, if it, if you have a First Amendment protection, a state cannot limit your First Amendment protections because federal law is supreme over state law. 
But what the state can do is actually protect your right to free speech greater, to a greater degree than the First Amendment does. So the ability of, of states uh, with, with regard to individual liberty is to be a one-way ratchet. In other words, they can make you more free than the federal constitution. They cannot make you less free. And so essentially what they're arguing is that by establishing personhood, they are granting greater liberty to the fetus, to the unborn child. And they're trying to move that one-way ratchet in the direction of liberty for the unborn child. Now, in the abortion context, that one-way ratchet has tended to work differently. In other words, a state can pass a law that grants a woman uh, greater freedom to obtain an abortion than federal law protects. Here, the states are trying to do something different. They're trying to locate the liberty interest in the child, in the unborn child. And so that's the strategic, the legal strategic move here. That's the legal strategic attempt here, and it's located directly in that sentence. And make no mistake, this is about, these are, these laws are designed from the outset to be fundamentally in opposition to the holding of Roe, so that there would be no way for the Supreme Court to rule to uphold these these laws without undermining, fatally undermining Roe. That's the purpose of the law, and the personhood provision is designed to place that law in the most favorable possible uh, legal posture when it makes that appeal. That's that's the goal of it. Um, and this is something that's relatively new, not in the attempt to raise personhood. It's relatively new in the success um, and in passing through these various state statutes. Personhood amendments, for example, have tended to fail at the ballot box in the recent past. Um, but these are being passed by state legislatures, um, often by supermajorities. So the success at establishing fetal personhood under state law is what's new. The attempt to uh, establish fetal personhood is not new. Thank you for that helpful history of the fetal personhood movement and for noting that although the attempt is not new, it's having more success recently and it does represent a direct uh, assault on the constitutional premises of Roe. Mary, can you tell us about the history of the fetal personhood movement? I'll just give a call out to a timeline that ProPublica published on the personhood movement, uh, which says that it was 1986 where Minnesota became the first state to pass a fetal homicide law, that um, it was in 2013 that North Dakota lawmakers became the first in the U.S. to pass a personhood amendment, and then it notes the recent successes in 2014. Uh, you, you've written extensively about this and are the world expert. Tell us about the history of the fetal personhood movement and its current success. Well, I think often when people refer to personhood, they're referring to a strategy. But I think to understand the pro-life movement, you have to understand that in many ways, starting in the 1960s, the pro-life movement was a personhood movement. So prior to Roe, when pro-lifers argued that the Constitution already recognized a right to life, um, they often used the idea of personhood to make that point, um, arguing that the, the fetus was a person for the purposes of both the Due Process Clause and the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. And looking to many of the sources you see being invoked in states like Missouri or Alabama or Georgia now, including uh, the Declaration of Independence um, and Natural Law, and the 14th Amendment, even the 13th Amendment that abolished slavery. So I think if you want to understand the, the history of personhood arguments, you have to understand that in many ways it's 
the history of the pro-life movement as a whole. Um, so after Roe, for example, uh, pro-lifers who were very fragmented strategically in some ways all united in the idea that the Constitution had to be amended um, to recognize uh, fetal personhood and abolish abortions. So when we're talking about personhood strategies now, we're often talking about one way of chipping away at Roe or directly attacking Roe. But I think the end goal for pretty much all abortion opponents is the same, and that would be the establishment of fetal personhood and rights to life, not simply the overturning of Roe. Um, I think David's absolutely right that uh, recently, and really for some time going back really into the, the early 1980s, personhood arguments have not been strategically ascendant in the pro-life movement, um, in part because it was thought that they weren't either appealing to political majorities and therefore not likely to appeal to politicians, particularly in the GOP, and because they weren't thought to yet appeal to popular majorities of voters um, or to the Supreme Court. So instead, you saw um, what a lot of pro-lifers and scholars call incrementalist strategies that would focus on laws said to be constitutional under Roe that would limit the number of abortions or access to abortion and also make Roe and the cases following it seem either incoherent or unworkable in such a way that you could ultimately make a case for overturning Roe down the road. Uh, personhood arguments always existed. There were always... Uh, pro-lifers who thought either that incrementalism was cowardly or that it was counterproductive, essentially that if you didn't ask for what you wanted from either politicians, the public, or the Supreme Court, you were never going to get it. But those groups mostly were on the losing end of strategic battles um, for some time and, and often found themselves sometimes outside of uh, legal and political strategies altogether. Operation Rescue, for example, uh, the group that mounted major clinic blockades in the 80s and 90s sometimes appealed to people who were impatient with the pace of change. So it is new to see um, groups taking personhood positions doing so well in state legislatures, um, seeming to have really strong appeal to politicians who might have been worried that those arguments in the past would alienate voters in the middle. Um, and I think demanding more of politicians. So I think you see a different expectation of what the Supreme Court is going to deliver. And you also see a different attitude among at least some state legislators about the political payoff that they're going to get from taking personhood positions than you might have seen in the past. Uh, David, I want to ask you about the constitutional basis for the state's authority to define personhood. And remember, dear We the People listeners, when we have these discussions of abortion and the Constitution, I want you to separate your political from your constitutional views. You may be uh, pro-life but believe that Roe and Casey were uh, correctly decided, or you might be pro-choice and believe that they're wrongly decided, but, but, but let, let, let's uh, focus on what you think the Constitution allows or prohibits. And David, what, what, uh, what is the basis for the state's ability to define fetal personhood? And uh, would Congress have a similar ability to define fetal personhood under the Constitution or not? Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. So in, as a general matter, if you're looking at sort of the constitutional background, that the constitutional distinction between a state government and the federal government is the federal government constitutionally is in theory at least a government of enumerated powers. It only has the power that the federal constitution gives it. Um, the remainder, the states by contrast in general have had something called the police power. The police power is essentially, um, uh, look, look at it as a reverse, that states have power 
uh, have a general governmental power that is restricted by their constitution, not so much just granted by their constitution, but restricted by their constitution. And this is one of the in, traditionally in American law, the vast majority of this of the laws that govern uh, human behavior or have been state laws to this day. You know, if you're talking about uh, prison populations and crim and uh, persons interaction with criminal law, you're talking about as a general matter, the large majority of people, it's it's state law. And so states have had have had traditionally a very broad authority over um, defining criminal statutes, uh, defining criminal penalties. And so the 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 real conflict here then becomes to what extent does that state police power begin to conflict with federal constitutional rights? Uh, ever since the incorporation of the Bill of Rights, for example, to the states, states have not had the ability to um, and pass laws that violate the First Amendment or the Fourth Amendment or the Fifth Amendment. And so the, the real question is how, to what extent is the general background state autonomy restricted by uh, federal constitutional principles? And that the essential uh, holding of both Roe and Casey is to say that the, the, the uh, abortion right is a federal constitutional right that no state can infringe upon uh, or at least impose an, an after Casey an undue burden upon. And so that's why I say that if you're going to talk about the fetal personhood elements of these state laws, they are in conflict with this holding, uh, uh, the holding of Casey. They are in conflict with the holding of Roe. And so as they're being passed, everyone who's passing them is, knows that and understands that they cannot go into effect unless Casey or and or Roe are overturned. They just cannot do it because they're in conflict with what is currently a federal constitutional principle. And so no one who's passing these laws is passing them with the belief that they're going to go in effect tomorrow, even if they have an immediate, you know, even if on paper they have immediate applicability, um, they're going to be enjoined instantaneously. This is a this is a um, strategic legal maneuver uh, that also has a very strong moral element to it as well. So, you know, one of the things that I think that it's important to understand as we're talking about some of these changes is you cannot understand this, these recent moves without understanding larger American polarization and the way Americans are clustering in various supermajority states. And so you have supermajority red states, you have supermajority blue states. And in that circumstance, a lot of the sort of the national polling or even discussions about kind of a, a, a mushy mid middle on these issues becomes less relevant. So these are supermajority red states passing laws uh, that are designed specifically to challenge and change the federal constitutional framework. Mary, let us really delve into this constitutional question of who decides when life begins. David says that unlike Congress, the states have a general police power that allows them to recognize uh, interests in fetal life that might exceed that recognized by the federal constitution. But can the Supreme Court avoid deciding for itself when life begins? In an article called The Right to Privacy, uh, in, published in 1989, Jed Rubenfeld said that Justice Blackmun was wrong to say that the court could refuse to decide when life begins because only if 
the fetus is a life at the moment of conception, could its interest be strong enough to override the woman's constitutionally recognized autonomy rights? So if a bunch of states continue to recognize fetal personhood, will the Supreme Court in fact have to decide on its own whether or not it agrees that for constitutional purposes that the fetus is a person? And, and on what basis in the Constitution could it make such a decision? Well, I don't think the court has to take the personhood route to overturning Roe, and I would actually be somewhat surprised if they did. Um, we already know that there's, as David pointed out earlier, a lot of caution um, that seems to have gripped this Supreme Court. We know that Chief Justice Roberts is an institutionalist who cares about the court's reputation, which in his mind seems to have sometimes something to do with partisan concerns. Um, and we also know that a personhood jurisprudence could have consequences beyond abortion. Um, so if a, a fetus or an unborn child is a person, they're going to be a person for a variety of legal purposes, not just for abortion purposes. So I think for many years, uh, pro-life attorneys were wagering that the court would be much more likely to say simply that the Constitution doesn't recognize a right to abortion, which would leave states free to do what they wanted with the question. They could outlaw abortion or they could fund and make abortion legal or they could do something in between, but it wouldn't forbid states from allowing abortion. Um, and I, I would still anticipate that that kind of overturning of Roe is far more likely um, than something involving personhood. Um, the case for personhood, interestingly, has always been, and I think continues to be, partly based on uh, scientific evidence, not simply on um, legal evidence. So usually the idea is that uh, you could argue, for example, that the framers believed that a fetus or unborn child was a person, um, both from the standpoint of biology and from the standpoint um, of legal philosophy. Uh, and those arguments continue to be made pretty forcefully by abortion opponents now. Arguments, for example, that we have better scientific evidence than we did in 1973 of the humanity of a fetus or unborn child, whether that involves genetics or um, other forms uh, of evidence. So I, I would expect you to see sort of com a combination of um, laws that rely heavily on constitutional history, but also on um, on science and scientific evidence. Uh, and that in many ways isn't new either. Um, if you look at briefs in Roe or even in earlier cases, there were lots of arguments that relied on um, new, what, what were then new at the time, uh, forms of science or medicine like fetology, um, with the argument being that personhood would always depend on this combination of scientific fact and constitutional law. Uh, David, Mary may well be right that the court will want to dodge this question, but if it were to squarely confront the question of fetal personhood, could it take refuge in original understanding? Or are notions of fetal personhood based more in natural law philosophy, easier to root in the Catholic uh, natural law tradition rather than in the uh, original understanding of the framers uh, since uh, before the mid-19th century, uh, many states uh, allowed for abortions before fetal quickening according to common law. It's a complicated historical debate, but um, do you believe that the Supreme Court will have to take a position on whether or not the Constitution recognizes fetal personhood, and how do you think it's likely to play out? 
Yeah, that I, you know, I don't think the Supreme Court's going to have to do anything. <laughs> the Supreme, the Supreme Court does what it wants. And I think that, you know, what there, what we have is a range here of possibilities. Uh, the Supreme Court could simply, because I, I doubt that any circuit court will, uh, uphold any one of these new heartbeat bills or, um, uphold the Alabama law, for example. I doubt a circuit court will just defy Supreme Court precedent and do so. And even if a three-judge panel did on bonk, I would imagine that circuit courts would uphold existing Supreme Court authority. So the Supreme Court could, could just choose to not hear one of these cases at all. Now, I do think that if you continue to have them volleyed up to the court, um, especially as legislature after legislature after legislature passes these things, the the possibility of the Supreme Court um, hearing one of these cases increases. Uh, I don't know if it becomes a probability, but I think the possibility, the odds of them hearing increase by some some amount. And in that circumstance, the court could just simply say it's upholding Roe or Casey. It could, um, it could essentially just say what we are looking at is the federal constitution and the federal constitution uh, we're going to repeat essentially the, the Blackman formulation from Roe, that under the federal constitution that uh, the, the right to life is not guaranteed specifically by the federal 14th Amendment. And then there's the federal right of privacy that is supreme over any effort the states try to make. So they don't actually have to grapple with the state definition. But if it does, I com- if they do, I completely agree that the battle is pro- probably going to be far more of a scientific battle than it will be a battle rooted in um, natural law, for example. Uh, and I think the and, and the pro-life side of the argument would probably circle its wagons far more around science than um, many, perhaps many people who are outside the pro-life movement would anticipate um, that there is just information that we have now that we did not have even in 1973, certainly not in the first wave of abortion legalizations that in, in, that were uh, in the waves of abortion legalizations in the 60s, for example, that there's just information we have now we didn't have. Um, and under that information, at the very least, the, sta- the Supreme Court should acknowledge personhood uh, the state personhood declarations. And is it's possible the Supreme Court will examine that kind of argument? I don't know that it's probable. Um, I would say if I was if I was a betting if I was betting on this, I would say that it is not probable. But I do think it is possible, and at least the thinking behind those folks who have uh, drafted these laws is that if it is possible, the state personhood determination just puts them in the strongest possible uh, intellectually consistent, scientifically consistent position to make that argument to the Supreme Court. Thanks very much for that uh, thoughtful weighing of the possibilities. Mary, if the court were to confront the question of fetal personhood under the Constitution, which David just said is possible but not probable, what should an originalist justice, that is, a justice who believes in interpreting the Constitution in light of its text and original understanding and the original public meaning of that text, uh, conclude about whether or not the fetus is a person from the moment of conception? Well, I think it's a, a pretty tricky question, which is one of the reasons why it may not be probable that they'll decide that issue 
um, at all, in addition from to the kind of optics and political backlash concerns. I, I think um, an originalist who wanted to reach that conclusion would probably point to the fact that uh, criminal abortion laws were widespread at the time of the ratification of the 14th Amendment and in fact had had spread relatively recently. So there was a relatively new um, and seemingly widespread legislative consensus that abortion was wrong. Um, the challenge, of course, is that uh, the enforcement of abortion laws, even at that time, and uh, common law interpretations of them were, were murky in many ways, in the sense that abortion was often not treated as murder. Um, women were not treated as having committed a homicide if they had abortions. Um, abortion laws weren't that evenly enforced. Often they were enforced predominantly when women died during an illegal abortion. Um, so I think there's the sort of the letter of the law versus the implementation of the law or interpretation of the law by subsequent courts, um, combined with the fact that those ratifying the 14th Amendment probably weren't thinking about abortion at all one way or another. It, it seems to me that obviously they had pretty important questions on their mind when it came to the aftermath of slavery and the rights of free people of color. Uh, so I, I think even finding an, an original intent when it comes to abortion would be um, a challenging thing to do. I know there are scholars who've written that there is uh, an originalism case to be made either for or against abortion rights. Um, I'm personally a little skeptical of those arguments and thinks that, th and then this might just be my prejudice as a historian, but I, I don't think the history here is a, that helpful a guide if you're an originalist justice. David, same question for you. How should an originalist justice rule on the question of fetal personhood if he or she were to rule on it and, and do uh, examine that complicated 14th Amendment history? One of the scholars that uh, Mary may have been referring to is Reva Siegel, who has a very interesting series of articles saying that the reason that states around the time of the passage of the 14th Amendment began to restrict abortion far more significantly than it had been restricted at the time of the founding was because of an uh, effort by doctors to reinforce uh, traditional and stereotypical uh, roles of women as caregivers, which might raise uh, equal protection concerns. But give us your take on, on the originalist question. And, you know, I think the fundamental originalist issue isn't so much centered around personhood as it is centered around the, the right of privacy argument. And so an originalist is going to have a hard time with the – and has had, and originalist justices have had for a long time, a very hard time with the development of privacy law. The penumbras and emanations uh, line from Griswold is almost a sort of a, 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 a bitter joke in originalist judicial circles, this idea that there are these zones of privacy that emanate from and are implied from the explicit elements of the Bill of Rights is not an originalist proposition. And so the originalist who's looking at Roe, by and large, doesn't really dive into the personhood element. They're instead looking at what's the originalist case for the statement that the right of privacy, this sort of broad right of privacy exists and abortion is encompassed within it. So as I understand in, in my experience with the originalist argument, it has not so much centered around um, the 14th Amendment and, and the personhood element of it. Um, I don't uh, – I think that it's far more centered around the existence of the broader right of privacy itself. And so that's why I say one of the reasons why the court, as a matter of law and sort of originalist logic, doesn't necessarily have to deal with the personhood issue at all 
It can instead look at Roe through the this right of privacy lens and essentially just say, declare that the Constitution has is silent on abortion. Uh, and then therefore that punts the issue back to the states. And so I think they, the, the, as far as the originalist case on whether the 14th Amendment uh, guarantees a right to life, I think that that is a tougher argument for an originalist to make. I, I'm, I, I think there's not a lot of evidence that the drafters of the 14th Amendment had in mind um, unborn children when they were thinking about um, what it, what was far as as was just said what was far more front and center in people's minds in these civil war amendments was the immediate cause of the civil war and was the uh, the resolution of the civil war which was granting full and fully legal equality to uh, freed slaves and so uh, the originalist case on personhood I think is a very different argument in a very different case than the originalist case on the right of privacy itself. Mary, uh, you mentioned that if uh, states were to recognize fetal personhood, uh, there'd be lots of consequences. A, a recent piece in the Washington Post, if a fetus is a person, it should get child support, due process, and citizenship uh, by Charles Chapman, uh, sums up some of the consequences that would follow from the recognition of fetal personhood. Um, others have noted that uh, in vitro fertilization might be illegal because the destruction of fertilized embryos could be considered a form of murder and so forth. So what is the legal consequence of these declarations of fetal personhood likely to be, and, and, and how will that affect the uh, abortion debate? Well, I think that the, the potentially complicated, maybe even unintended consequences of fetal personhood um, offer probably one of the most prominent reasons the court isn't likely to go that direction beyond there being um, a less solid originalist case. I know Josh Craddock um, wrote a recent piece arguing that there is an originalist case for fetal personhood, but I, that was relatively um, unique, I guess, or unusual in taking that position. Um, I think one of the, the related kind of interesting questions is that if, if you do recognize fetal personhood, where does abortion begin and end? So there would be questions about common forms um, of contraception. Uh, there's a debate about whether those contraceptives uh, prevent implantation or prevent fertilization. Um, if they prevent implantation, then those forms of contraception may be considered abortifacient. So we would be looking potentially at things like IUDs or uh, the birth control pill. Um, and th that would be true even if states that criminalize abortion without necessarily mentioning fetal personhood, but they would certainly be implicated by uh, fetal personhood as well. Um, otherwise, you would just be looking at any instance in which the law mentions personhood. Um, some obvious examples that really aren't controversial because the law on these subjects has already changed would be things like tort law, like wrongful death law, um, criminal homicide laws, um, or other forms of criminal law. But you'd expect to see at least the issue come up in everything from social security disability to tax law. Um, anywhere the word person comes up, it would at least need to potentially be dealt with. Um, and so one of the reasons I'm skeptical of the court's willingness to do that is that often you see the court's conservatives and originalists and, and often pro-life attorneys as well arguing that the court should, um, and I'm paraphrasing Justice Scalia here, get out of the abortion business. That was one of the appeals that was often made. Um, it's hard to see the court wanting to get out of the abortion business and into the fetal personhood business, which would be in and of itself a pretty complicated body of constitutional jurisprudence. So I'm, I'm skeptical. I think it's certainly possible. We, we're in a sort of 
world of unknowns, un unknown unknowns when it comes to this Supreme Court majority. But for a variety of reasons, I just think it would be it would be complicated and therefore very unlikely for them to go down that path. Thank you for calling out uh, Josh Craddock's mm -hmm. article, Protecting Prenatal Persons Does the 14th Amendment Prohibit Abortions, uh, published in the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy. I'll just quickly uh, summarize it because it's relevant to our discussion. He says, the structure of the argument is simple. The 14th Amendment's use of the word person guarantees due process and equal protection to all members of the human species. The pre-born are members of the human species from the moment of fertilization. Therefore, the 14th Amendment protects the pre-born. And he says that the crucial uh, question is if one concedes the minor premise that preborn humans are biological members of the human species, all you have to prove is that the term person in its original public meaning at the time of the 14th Amendment's adoption applied to all members of the human species. Uh, David, um, you know, can a citizen in Alabama, if its law were allowed to go into effect uh, and were overturned, uh, sue uh, a couple attempting in vitro fertilization on the grounds that it's a form of murder? And what would other consequences state by state of these state declarations of fetal personhood be for the rights of individuals within that state? Yeah, I think the, the short answer to that question is all of the complications that were, we just talked about would be punted to the states. So if, uh, in the absence of a, of a declaration of personhood under the 14th Amendment, the state personhood definitions would control. And these states, uh, have at least attempted in some ways to talk about, uh, the specific ways in which that applies. So for example, Georgia, um, talk specifically about child support, uh, that child support would, um, that child support would kick in, obligations uh, would kick in from the moment a human heartbeat is detected, or for tax purposes, um, from the moment the human heartbeat is detected, then there, is, there are the tax consequences come in this, this is, the unborn baby is a distinct person. So what you would then begin to have is the states would start to pass a web of statutes that begin to parse through and define these things. And right now, they, they don't have that. Um, Georgia's probably the closest of any of the states to try to deal with it in a more comprehensive way. Um, there has been a personhood declaration, and then there has not really been, because this is, um, in many ways, this is a, a litigation strategy, um, there has not been, they have not worked through all of the ramifications. And so what you would end up having is a web of additional statutes. You'd have a web of additional regulations. You would have um, a, an emerging strand of state jurisprudence in each one of these states. So essentially, you know, the, if there is no personhood in the 14th Amendment, but the court says that a state can define personhood, all of that complexity goes back to the individual state. And so the short answer to your question would be, well, that will be something that would be something that Alabama courts and Alabama legislature would have to decide. Um, Mary, would this fetal personhood recognition state by state dramatically ratchet up the polarization of the abortion debate? And how would it play out politically? I know we, we've been discussing the constitutional aspects, but uh, Thomas Edsel has just issued a piece in the New York Times 
noting that according to the latest Gallup poll, in the last decade, support for unrestricted abortion rights has grown from 21 to 29 percent, while the percentage backing a complete ban has fallen from 21 to 18 percent. And consistently with the polls really since 73, super majorities, uh, the most recent one is 60 to 34, believe abortion should be legal during the first three months of pregnancy, and even larger majorities support restrictions on abortion later in pregnancy. So, you know, would the possibility of uh, murder prosecutions for IVF uh, dramatically uh, unsettle this debate? And how big a deal is it? I think I think it's a, a quite big deal. I think in many ways, um, pro-life groups after Roe were fighting on favorable political train for just the reason that you mentioned, Jeff, which was that many Americans were um, in favor of abortion being legal, but in favor of it being restricted. And so pro-choice groups were in the position of having to constantly fight restrictions, which made it easy for pro-life groups to paint them as extremists. Now you have pro-life groups defending laws like the ones you see emerging from Alabama and Georgia, um, which makes it easy for pro-choice groups to paint them as extremists, at least if you look at what many polls say Americans want. Um, I agree with David that there has been some sorting of Americans into deep blue and deep red states, but of course I live in Florida, so it's not always the case. There are many states that are purple and conflicted about this, um, and those are often the voters you see uh, redefining their positions on whether they, they support uh, abortion being legal in all, no, or only some instances. Um, and it, we have some historical evidence for that. For example, when uh, the main abortion issue in the news was so-called partial birth abortions, uh, you saw a lot of Americans going the other way. And for the first time in a kind of sustained way in American history, a lot of Americans beginning to say that they didn't support legal abortion under every circumstance. Gallup has really interesting writing on this. And so I think you would expect to see those Americans in the middle in purple states becoming potentially more hostile to the pro-life movement as a whole. Um, maybe it, it's unclear whether they would actually vote that way, to what extent that would be an issue that brought people to the polls. Um, but I think that's one of the reasons you see a, a strategic fracture in the pro-life movement right now about whether these laws are wise, because there's been a long-standing view among some pro-life lawyers that Planned Parenthood versus Casey came down the way it did because the court perceived popular opinion to be behind a right to choose abortion. And many pro-life lawyers believe that unless the court no longer believed that, regardless of its membership, that Casey would remain the law. Uh, and so what we're talking about when we're talking about abortion has a lot to do with what popular opinion actually would say. Um, in terms of whether people overall view themselves as pro-choice or pro-life or somewhere in between. So I think there's more of a possibility of backlash, certainly um, on Election Day, but maybe even in the Supreme Court, if that belief about the court's investment in popular opinion is actually true. Last uh, question, David, and then we'll go to closing arguments. Do you agree that there is a danger of backlash uh, if states recognize fetal personhood or not? Uh, and uh, is it wise for the pro-life movement to embrace uh, fetal personhood uh, or not? Uh, you've written powerfully on this, as, as has your National Review colleague Ramesh Panuru. What is the thinking about the wisdom of recognizing fetal personhood? It's split. <laughs> um, you know, I would say there's a there's there's sort of a double backlash phenomenon here. So. Um, it's absolutely correct to say that to the extent that sort of a, what's perceived as an extreme view on one side or the other becomes sort of the face of the national argument, that can have national political implications. So if the face of 
The pro-choice movement is, for example, the New York uh, uh, New York's new law, which liberalizes the availability of abortion in the third trimester when it's the least popular according to national polls. Well, then there was some who say, well, that that helps the pro-life movement because the face of the abortion argument is then this one view on the left, sort of the left edge. But then if the Alabama law is the face of the national argument, then that's going to hurt the pro-life movement because it's moving the national conversation to sort of the right edge of the argument. But one of the things that that ignores is that for these local politicians, the impact on the national debate is not their primary concern. Their primary concern is their own is representing their own constituents. And will they be able to continue to represent their own constituents? So there's this sort of double backlash phenomenon. On the one hand, you have these sort of national lawyers and national activists weighing in and saying, Alabama, what you're doing is bad for the national cause, or New York, what you're doing might be bad for the national cause. But at the same time, you've got New York politicians and Alabama politicians and who represent their own constituents, and their constituents are saying, this is what we want. And, and I think one of the, uh, the realities that you're seeing in some of these southern states and Midwestern states is they've essentially already passed the laws that they can pass to a large degree that are arguably consistent with Casey to make a pro-life, to take a pro-life stance. Um, they have exhausted the incremental approach. And so they don't see any downside in going beyond incrementalism and are frankly unconvinced by sort of this, this, that they have to take one for the national team. Uh, and so I think when on the, on the incrementalism versus sort of throwing down the gauntlet approach, my, my argument has been, uh, and this goes back to something you said very early in the podcast, Jeffrey, that, um, you can't get what you don't ask for. And if all the laws the Supreme Court reviews are these various incremental laws, it can, in theory, uphold all of them without doing, without changing the Casey undue burden standard. However, uh, in that, in that case, you may never know and you might not understand whether or not there is a uh, majority there to overturn Roe. In this circumstance, I think it's important to begin to understand, does that majority exist? And even if the states, the court is going to refuse to hear these cases, then that's important to know as well. And the last thing I would add to this is it is to just think of the extent to which the federal judicial confirmation battles have come to dominate American national politics. And they dominate American national politics, yes, a little bit because of the free speech or religious liberty type cases, but predominantly because of the abortion cases. And I think there is a, it, it, we're going to have to reach a point. It's, it, we're going to have to reach a point where we're going to, is, we're going to know, are Rowan Casey going to be the law of the land or are Rowan Casey actually in peril? Uh, and if Rowan Casey are going to be the law of the land, that has massive national political ramifications, especially around these judicial confirmation wars. If Rowan Casey are actually in peril, that's the same thing in a different direction. But right now, there's an enormous amount of uncertainty uh, around these things. And one way to get to certainty is by asking the court for certainty. And that's what multiple states will be doing. Well, it is time for closing arguments in this completely fascinating discussion. And the question I'm going to pose to each of you is the question I'm going to set as homework for Are We the People 
listeners, um, and it's a two-part question. Uh, first, uh, do the states have the constitutional authority to define fetal personhood? And second, does the Constitution itself take a position on fetal personhood or not? And the first closing argument is to Mary. Well, I think that the Constitution itself doesn't take a position on fetal personhood and that if whether the states have the authority to define it for themselves or not depends, as we've been saying, entirely on the fate of Roe and Casey. Um, and unless or until the court overturns those decisions, then states plainly don't have the authority to recognize fetal personhood. And David, last word is to you. Do the states have the constitutional authority to define fetal personhood? And does the Constitution take a position on fetal personhood? Well, as of right now, because of the Roe and Casey decisions, this the states can declare personhood, I do believe. However, they cannot declare personhood and then regulate abortion more strictly than Roe or Casey would permit. And so they may be able to declare personhood for other purposes, such as tax deductions, child support, things like that. But to the extent it conflicts with uh, the abortion right created by Roe and, and sustained through Casey, they're not going to be able to do it without Roe and Casey being overruled. I mean, I think that that much is absolutely crystal clear. I don't believe the 14th Amendment under the original public meaning um, has uh, establishes personhood of the unborn child, which is why I don't think that a reversal of Roe uh, would lead to a federal ban on abortion. Um, but I do believe that the right of privacy um, is that this this federal right of privacy is not uh, a manifestation of the original public meaning of the Bill of Rights or the Civil War Amendments. And so that's where Roe and Casey are most vulnerable. But I do think from the standpoint, if you are a, a, if you are a pro-life person, the personhood argument is the most scientifically and intellectually consistent argument you can make to the court, which is one of the reasons why these state legislatures are trying to make that argument. Uh, thank you so much, David French and Mary Ziegler, for an illuminating, rich, uh, and balanced, uh, and really educational discussion of this crucial question of fetal personhood and the future of abortion and the Constitution. Dear We the People listeners, you heard the homework. Uh, first, uh, do states have the constitutional authority to define fetal personhood? And second, does the Constitution take a position on fetal personhood? And in the course of your answer, if you want to take the time to write to me at jrosen at constitutioncenter.org, you can tell me whether or not you believe as a constitutional matter that Roe and Casey should be overturned or not. In the meantime, once again, uh, it's been an honor to have you both. David, Mary, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and the Constitutional Content Team. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone, anywhere who is hungry for constitutional education and debate. And remember always, dear We the People friends, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, passion, engagement, and willingness to do homework every now and then of people like you across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. It is such an honor to host thoughtful, 
discussions like these about our most contested constitutional issues, and I hope that you will signal your support of our mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership, or give a donation of any amount to help us continue to spread constitutional light and support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.